You're listening to STS Podcast. We pray that this message will encourage you and give you hope throughout this week. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, open our hearts this morning, uh, this is your word, and you say that your word does not return to you void, that it, it, it's profitable for us to hear. So, Father, we pray that if nothing else, we've heard the word, and that word is driven deeply into our hearts in the next few minutes that we have together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what are some things? I'm going to interact with you a little bit more this morning uh, than I normally do, uh, mainly because I have a handheld mic and I feel a little bit like a talk show host. But what are some things that your parents have said to you over and over and over and over. Okay, clean your room. What else? Obey me. Obey me. Yes. Take your plate over to the counter. That would be mine. That's my daughter over there. Because I said so. You know, I think that the, the Bible says, it says, thus saith the Lord. That's his way of saying, because I said so. No. It's actually a very good word. It's a good word. Yes. Okay, so don't put your hand in the garbage disposal or you end up like Luke Skywalker at the end of Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Act your age. Uh, Or as you get into middle school, it's act your age, not your IQ. Old joke. Yes. You might do that later. Yes, I might do that later. I might do that later. Maybe. Do your homework. Yes. I'll think about it. (laughs) I like that one. Maybe. No. no, yes, we've gotten no's and maybe's, and I didn't hear any yeses. <laughs> you don't hear that word a lot? Okay, this is some of the ones I heard growing up back in the 70s. I'm old. Look both ways before you cross the street. Did you get that one? Have you ever heard that one? Okay. Make sure to eat all of your vegetables, which I did not do. I remember one time I was actually sitting at the table so long, my parents finally gave up. You're going to sit at this table until you eat your vegetables. And I sat at the table so long, they finally gave up. Don't try that. I think I actually got a spanking later. Um, And then lastly, don't talk to strangers. How many of you have heard that? Don't talk to strangers. Stranger danger. Well, I grew up in the era of stranger danger, and here's why. Back in 1981, before 1981, the world was different. 
kids played in the neighborhood, your, your mom would just say, go out and play. She wouldn't see you for hours. And then you'd come back and she'd be like, oh, great. Did you have a great, uh, great time? Yes. Okay, here's some food. Now go out some more. And so you just stay out. Um, that was until summer of 1981, when don't talk to strangers, what they had repeated to us over and over and over again had become profoundly ingrained in our minds. A young man named um, Adam Walsh has, was abducted from a local mall and was found several weeks later slain. We didn't know this. As, ch as children, we had no idea. I was nine years old. He was six years old when he's, he was abducted. The mall was right across the street from a police station. His mom had just briefly left him to play, yes, an Atari video game. This is years ago. An Atari video game. And he had been kicked out of the mall because some kids would, near him were causing a disruption. And he was abducted. This freaked every parent out, rightly so. And everything changed in the summer of 1981. There was no more, we'll let you go and you'll come back whenever. There was no more, you're just wandering the mall on your own. Everything became locked down as our parents, through whispers, shared the news of what happened. We didn't know exactly what happened. We know a child had disappeared. But of course, as the rumor mill starts and the gossip starts going, we start hearing news of what happened to this young man. And it freaked us out too. So it was profoundly driven home to us the words, don't talk to strangers, as much as we just like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. When we heard the news of what happened, that made an impact on us. The wisdom of our parents and the repetition that our parents brought to us finally was driven home. Paul is doing something similar here. When he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you, what he's saying to them is, I know you've heard this before. You may have heard it from me a million times, but this is so important for me to tell you, I'm going to tell it to you again. Because he knows the danger. Just like our parents knew the danger of people coming up to us and luring us away. He knew the danger. And so he said, what I'm about to tell you, and he, in the verses that are following that, what I'm about to tell you is a safeguard for you. It will keep you safe. In other words... He says, I don't care if you think I'm being a mother hen. There are some things that you already know that I'm going to remind you of, and that's what I'm going to do today. You've probably heard some of this before, but you're going to hear it again. What his point is, it's important to us as well. Religion will steal your joy and kill your faith. That is what he's trying to tell the Philippians. Religion will steal your joy and kill your faith in your devotion to Christ. In verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And if you're reading that in the NIV, you miss the three bewares. He says, look out. It says three times in the original language, it says beware. Beware the dogs, beware the evildoers, beware the mutilators of fish, flesh. And who are these people? Who do you think these people are? Any idea? Pharisees. Okay, so they may be Pharisees. Y'all went through Galatians recently, didn't you? What was Paul really directing all of, how was he, who was he directing his words to in that one, Galatians? Do you remember? The church in, in, in Galatia, but he was specifically trying to defend them against Judaizers. And these are the people who told the Christians that you have to follow the Mosaic law perfectly to be accepted by God. Jesus is fine, but you've got to add to what Jesus did. 
He be, these are the people who believe, whether they're Pharisees or Judaizers, they believe that God's love and their salvation was based on their own observance of the law of Moses. Now, how does he describe them? You might want to open up your app or a Bible just to take a look at it in Philippians 3. How does he describe them? Beware the dogs. First thing he calls them is dogs. Why does he call them dogs? Is he just being mean? Dogs was the word that Jews used towards anyone who was not a Jew. Gentile dogs. So if you're not of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you two in this room are considered a dog by those who are Jewish insiders. And so he turns the tables on him. He says, no, they're the dogs. They are the ones who are no longer the covenant people of God. We who believe in Jesus are. These aren't the dogs. He calls them dogs for another reason, too. These aren't dogs like the dogs. You, How many of you have dogs? These aren't the kind of dogs that look lovingly at you when you come home. And you know they smile, right? When they smile and they pant. They smile, don't they? They're not the kind of dogs that look longingly at you while you're eating a plate of nachos, thinking, are you going to drop one? Are you going to drop one? You can drop one or look pitiful enough to give me some food. Give me some food. Give me some food. These dogs were the kind of dogs back in uh, Israel, even though they had some domesticated dogs. There were a lot of wild dogs that ran in packs that were very dangerous. And so he calls them dogs because he wants to point out how deadly legalism is. He also calls them evildoers. Now I want you to let that sink in for a moment. Because these people who commanded legalistic righteousness are actually considered evildoers. So to command legalistic righteousness is not righteous. It's evil. And that's an important distinction because in regard to religion, religion does not save. Religion does not change our hearts. But he does that, he wants to drop a teaser because he, he says that those who would impose religion on Christ followers are evildoers. Does that at all make you feel uncomfortable? That he would call someone who is espousing righteousness, righteous observance, an evildoer. Well, the law embodies the character of God, and it is, Jesus does say that the law is good, but the law can't save us. It's one of the things that we've learned, we should have learned over and over and over again in Sunday school, is the law can't save us. The law embodies God's character. It is the outline of what God intended us to be, but it's because sin broke us into a million pieces, we cannot use that to gain any kind of credibility before God at all, apart from Christ. We are now unable to merit anything before God. No, ma no matter how orderly our lives may seem, Isaiah 64, 4 tells us all our righteous acts are filthy rags. And that's why the Pharisees were so offensive to Jesus. It was because they pretended that their righteousness, their goodness before God, actually won his favor. And that made, that made Jesus angry. Anytime good deeds flow from a dead heart, they deserve God's condemnation. I'm going to say that again. Anytime good deeds flow from a dead heart, heart that's not alive unto Jesus, it deserves condemnation. Because those aren't deeds that do anything. 
Because the law was put in place for a reason. It was put in place to show us our inability. But are we supposed to follow the law? Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. But right now, hold that thought, put a pin in it, we'll come back to it in a second. First, I want to talk about Jesus and Paul's imagery of, of those who were Pharisees, those who were outwardly righteous. The, um, one of the passages that uh, is Matthew 23, 27. Does anyone have Matthew 23, 27? They can open up to Matthew 23, 27. Who will read that for us? How terrible it will be for you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Those are some great words, aren't they? Jesus knew how to win friends and influence people. He was that kind of guy who just, hey, let me tell you what you are. You're a whitewashed tomb. What's a whitewashed tomb? If you've read Tom Sawyer... And he's, and you've read, have you, how many of you had to read Tom Sawyer or watch the play or whatever? Remember when he's whitewashing the fence and he gets other people to do it for him and actually pay him to do it? Brilliant kid. Well, the Pharisees, what they used to do is they used to decorate tombs. They would whitewash them. They would paint the outsides of them and make them look beautiful. And that's what Jesus is, is saying about them. To, to really get the imagery of what he's trying to say about legalism and what it is like, uh, it reminds me of a time when we went on a mission trip when I was a youth pastor. We went down to Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And Bay St. Louis, Mississippi uh, was one of the areas that was affected by the Katrina hurricane uh, that was just devastating along the Gulf. And this, we were, our task was to go in and take a house down to its studs. So it was a lot of demolition work. It was a lot of fun to break stuff and like tear, tear, tear walls out except we had to do it in masks because there was nothing but black mold in there because this house had not been opened in nine months. Floodwaters hit. You could see where the floodwaters had come off almost all the way to the ceiling. And everything in the, the house was chaos. Uh, so our job was to throw out a bunch of stuff. And one of the things we had to throw out was a, a freezer full of meat that had been unplugged for nine months. So you can tell that of all the cool things like ripping out toilets and like knocking down walls and pulling down mirrors and watching them shatter, everybody liked to do that. But how many of you think actually wanted to open up the freezer that had been filled with meat and was unplugged for nine months? Yes, negative two is, is exactly it. So the adult leaders are the ones who had to do that. We had a former Marine with us who ended up, that, used, that was his job. We, we figured being a Marine would you know, make his stomach steal. You, you don't open a freezer for nine months and it gets pretty nasty on the inside, does it not? Well, uh, imagine that you wanted to refurbish that, okay? So question, what would you do to refurbish that freezer? Say someone says, you know, this is a family heirloom. I don't know why a freezer would be a family heirloom, but go with me here, okay? Go with me here. Uh, this is a family heirloom. I really want to use this freezer again. What would you have to do to this freezer to make it usable? Okay, plug it back in, and then you plug it in, and it's like nothing happens because it's waterlogged. So you have to move to step two. So what's step two? Burn it. <laughs> okay, clean it out, get the water out. Okay, so let's say that the person who, who wants to refurbish this thing is squeamish and doesn't really want to open it. All right? So they do everything else. What are, what's the everything else they can do to clean this thing? 
Get the water out. Well, we have to take the meat out eventually, but this person's squeamish, so they're not touching the inside of it. So what they do is they, they fix all the electrical components, they plug it back in, so it actually starts working, and then they make it look, they change all the chrome on the outside, they take some paint, they paint it up, it looks as good as new, and then they put it in their truck, they take it over to your house, <laughs> they take it to your front porch where there's a convenient plug, right there on the front porch, they plug it in, they leave a card that says, happy birthday. I love you so much. This is yours. How would you feel about the person that put that on your step? Would the phrase, it's the thought that counts, really apply to the situation? No, because it's a freezer full of disgusting meat that no one's ever touched in nine months, probably now 10 months. And when you open that, the stench that's going to hit you is going to be overwhelming. That is exactly what God is saying, and that's what Paul is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying when it comes to a heart that's dead, and we try to produce good works before him. Whitewashed tombs mean even if you clean yourself up on the outside before God, you're revolting on the inside. It's like someone dumped a, a freezer full of, of uh, nine-month-old rotting meat off on your front porch, put a card on it, says, I love you and happy birthday. You may think that that's a wonderful gift, but in, before God, our righteousness is that. And so Paul's trying to remind us of that. Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, if you're not in Christ, that is exactly the imagery that you get. And if you're not revolted enough, I'm going to revolt you a little bit more before this hour's up. Because we do have some middle schoolers here that they'll appreciate this. Um, but I want you to really understand what that word means. Because when Paul, when Paul goes on, he says, um, he says, for it is we who are the circumcision who serve Christ by a spirit and boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh, though I have many re reasons to, for such confidence. Okay, so before he transitions into telling us what, what legalistic righteousness really truly is in its purest form, he says, you want to play the game? You look good on the outside? I've got you beat. He says, I've done everything better than you have. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was, I was born of the tribe of Saul. I was excelling in Phariseeism. As, as far as legalistic, legalistic righteousness went, I was the best. And then he quickly turns. He says, I had the, the nicest whitewashed tomb on the block. He had the prettiest refurbished freezer containing nine-month-old rotten meat. But when he met Christ, when he began to know who Christ was, it changed everything. Now, you may be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. I know some of you grew up in the church and you're kind of like, I cannot wait till I don't have to do this stuff anymore. Statistically speaking, there are some of you in here. Wherever you are in that relationship, you've got to, you've got to pivot from the, what I'm doing apart from Christ makes God pleased with me to what God has done through Jesus Christ makes God pleased with me. That makes a huge difference in your relationship with him. Because when it is dependent upon us, it kills your joy. 
And it kills your devotion to Jesus because he's nothing more than a slave master to you with a bunch of rules that you have to follow. Because to a dead heart, to a heart that's not alive to Jesus, that's what it feels like. It feels like a bunch of rules. And it will feel like a bunch of rules every time you slip back into the fact that your, your status before God is dependent upon you and not dependent upon Jesus. You slip back into that, it kills your joy. And so for, G, for Paul to know Jesus, it changed everything for him. Religion is deadly precisely because it does not want you to focus on what is coming out of your heart, but instead what's on the surface of your skin. And that's why when we have said the words to you, and you've heard these words over and over again, Jesus is the only way to God. How many of you heard that over and over again? Hopefully you've heard it over and over again. Why do we say that? Because religion is that nine-month-old decaying meat in a freezer that we try to bring to God. It's our way of trying to get to God in our own power. And it's insulting to him. It's insulting to him. So that's why Jesus is the only way. Only his righteousness is pleasing to the Father. And Paul figured that out. And it changed his perspective. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, what? Garbage that I may gain Christ. So all those ways that he was trying to please God, apart from Jesus, he now considers garbage. And here's where I'm going to try to turn your stomach just a little bit. So forgive me. But I think this is important. Paul's not saying they are moderately offensive to God, that your legalistic righteousness is moderately offensive to God. He's saying it's incredibly offensive to God. And the word he uses there for garbage, your translations of the Bible will not translate that because they protect you from the word that he uses. Sometimes your Bible translations will protect you from just the graphic nature of some of the language that is used in the Bible, and this is one of them. So I'm going to press on a little bit further, and I'm going to tell you what this word means. I'm going to apologize for it right now. The word literally means, it's a compound word that means what's thrown to dogs. Oh, it doesn't sound too disgusting, does it? I'll tell you a little story about when I was in second grade. When I was in second grade, I went over to my friend Frank's house. Frank had a cat and a dog, and uh, he had to do chores every Saturday. And before we could play A-Team or whatever was popular at the time, I think it was A-Team, my memory fades because I, again, am old, he had to clean out the litter box. So he takes the litter box outside, he takes a hose to it, I'm just standing there watching him, and it's already disgusting as it is, right? And then he goes, hey, Zach, you want to see something? I'm like, what? He whistles for the dog. And I'm just going to, I'm going to tone this down just a tad. The dog makes a meal out of what is left over from the litter box. I literally thought I was going to lose my breakfast at that point. I was so revolted and have probably never, I've been revolted since then, but I've, at that point in my life, I had never been so revolted. I'd never seen something so disgusting. And that's 
exactly what that word means. It means that this is what the dogs eat. And that those who strive after legalistic righteousness before God, who are trying to please him in their own efforts, that's exactly what it's like. And when you come to know Christ, and when you know the surpassing greatness of his righteousness alone, what he did in his perfection, when you look back on those things you did, apart from Christ trying to please him, they revolt you. They should revolt you. Because that is not what pleases God ultimately. He moves from there, and he, and he, changes, he changes his tone. He moves into, into why legalistic righteousness is bad, and he moves into, into the other question. The other question is, aren't we supposed to follow the law? Right? Aren't we supposed to follow the law? Aren't we told, follow the law? So what's the difference? If he's telling us, don't follow the law... And then the Bible tells us to follow the law. What's going on? What's going on? The law brings us to the point of admitting that we cannot do what pleases God in our flesh. But after we come to know Jesus, what happens is through the Spirit, we begin, we begin to bear fruit. And the law is a mirror of God's perfect will. We can never perfectly please God in our flesh. We will never be perfect on this side of heaven. If someone tells you that we'll be perfect this side of heaven, run. Because it's not true. Christ was perfect for us, but once we're joined to him, like a, branch, a dead branch is joined to a tree, it begins to bear fruit. Once your heart is made alive, what comes from that new heart is pleasing to God because it comes through Christ. It comes by his spirit. Paul says it here, what, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So first of all, he says, my righteousness is Christ himself. That's our justification. But he goes on and he says, he also wants to know the transformative power of Christ in his life. And here's where the rubber meets the road. This is where it changes for every single one of us. He says he wants to know three things. What are those three things? What does he want to know? He wants to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, and what else? And he wants to, he wants to be like him in his death so as to attain to the resurrection. That last part sounds a little weird, so we'll get to that in one second. But the power of his resurrection, it's uh, what Romans... 6, 10 through 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. It means that the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us at any given moment. Whatever we're walking through, whatever we're facing, the ability to be transformed in Christ comes from the spirit and the spirit power, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives and works through us. which means that that's the access to the power we have. It says, um, he says that uh, we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That doesn't mean that you can do anything that you want to do. It doesn't mean that you can scale a large building. It does not mean that you can do anything you want to do. It means that you can follow Christ if he's empowered you to do so. But it's dependent upon his power. It's not dependent upon our flesh. That's Paul's point. 
Second, he says, and this is probably the, the most profound thing he, he says. He says uh, he wants to, to participate in his sufferings, meaning that, as Hebrews 4.15 says, it says, For we do not have a high priest that's incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet is without sin. That means that when you serve Christ, it's not that he doesn't know what's going on in your world or that he's a distant God. He's very familiar with, it, with your sufferings. Uh, as we sing one of the verses in O Holy Night that we don't usually sing often is that he knows our need to our weakness, no stranger. So when you ask questions like, God, do you know how I've been mistreated? Jesus says, yes. Been there. When you say, God, do you know how it feels to lose someone you love? Jesus says, yes, I've been there. When you ask the question, um, God, do you know how it feels for people to put words in your mouth, to cut you out, to insult you, even when you didn't insult them? And Jesus says, yes, yes, yes. I know that. There's power in identifying with his sufferings. Because in every question you have to ask why you're going through something, Jesus has gone through it. Not only has he been tempted, he's felt suffering deeply, deeper than we'll ever feel it. And that should push us towards Christ. That should push us deeper in our relationship with him. But then he moves on and he says, becoming like him in his death, which means that Paul was afraid, Paul, that Paul was, wasn't afraid of death. Even if ministry took his life, death no longer had any sting. And everything we do, we live little deaths every single day. There are deaths that we have to die to the things that we want versus the thing Christ wants for us. There are things that Paul had to die to. He wanted to be celebrated by the Pharisees of the day. He had to die to that, and, and yet he was despised for it. And then he says these curious words, somehow attaining to the resurrection. Does that mean that Paul doubted that at some point that he'd be resurrected from the dead? No. This isn't Paul's doubt. It's Paul's way of saying that death in Christ is a necessary part of resurrection in Christ, not only spiritually but physically. We have to die to certain things in our world to be raised to newness of life in Christ. So what? What does this all mean? There are things that we have to lay down and there are things that we have to pick up. Legalistic righteousness are those things that we have to lay down. Relationship in Jesus Christ is that thing that we have to pick up. That's the thing that we have to walk with Christ through every single day. It's the, it's the little decisions in your life. It's the little things. What does it mean to follow Christ? It means that every little decision is discussed about with him. It's brought before him. It, there's a dialogue going on between him. He's not just out there somewhere and we're relating to him every once in a while. It is an ongoing relationship. It's when you fail, you come to him. And it's when you're doubting, you come to him. And it's when you're struggling, you come to him. And it's in the coming to him that changes everything. Because that's heart stuff. That's not outward obedience. That's the relationships that changes your soul. So where are you this morning? Are you rejoicing in Christ and all he's done for you or is doing uh, in you? Or are you in some measure trying to please him apart from the relationship with Jesus?
That's the point where we have to look at our own heart, open up that freezer, metaphorically speaking, open up that freezer, take a look inside. What's inside? Is it decay or is it a new heart in Christ? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. You can check out other messages of this and other series at stsalana.org slash podcast. Have a blessed day and hope to see you soon in this